Welcome, listeners, back to the QBS Express, the ACEC Kansas podcast. I'm Executive Director Scott Heidner, and I'm excited to have as my guest today Linda Darr. Linda is the new president of ACEC National. I say new. It's not that new yet. We'll, <laughs> we'll get into that in a little bit. But we are recording our, our hosts today. We appreciate the hospitality of Black & Beach. They've got us in a conference room here uh, in the Kansas City area where Linda was in town for a conference. So, Linda, thanks for making time to join us. Absolutely, Scott. Thanks for having me. And I am thrilled to be in the Black & Beach office for the first time. Yeah. Great and member, great facility. Really excited to see this firm. And hopefully not the last. Hopefully not so the last. So, for our listeners, it is uh, the first week of March. And uh, I have to apologize to our guest. We bring her to Kansas us in the middle of a heinous string of weather, sub-zero Sunday night going into Monday morning, but uh, she seems to be no worse for the wear. So we're excited to have you, Linda. You started uh, officially in your role? Yeah, I started on, I believe it's August 6th okay. was the start date, and I haven't done the math, uh, which is a terrible thing to say when you work with the engineering <laughs> industry, but uh, I think it's somewhere around seven months. Yeah. That's yeah. why we work for engineers. They do the math for <laughs> That's us. That's right. Right. We have to fill in the gaps. That's right. right. Well, that is uh, fairly new still by industry standards, but we've been very excited to have you in and have a chance to visit with you and help our listeners know more about you. Let's uh, wrap it all the way back since you will be a new entity to most of our listeners here. Um, tell us where you grew up, mm. uh, You know what, what occupied your childhood, what oh. were your... Uh, hobbies that did or didn't contribute to your long-term success and all oh, that kind of stuff. You're creating flashbacks. <laughs> um, so, yeah, th- I feel like I'm in the search committee all over again. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I gave them the brief version. Maybe I'll give you a little bit more, but I am one of the rare beings in Washington and that's someone who's actually a native. So, wow. Yeah, yeah I that grew is rare. Up, grew up in the area. Um, grew up in Maryland, but just, you know, 10 miles outside of D.C. And um, the youngest of five, my mom and dad grew up in D.C. And um, it's it's kind of funny that it's all come full circle that way and that, you know, people look at me and they say, I can't believe you can stay there. But I am very proud of growing up, you know, right outside the nation's capital. I do think it's a beautiful city. Um, like I said, youngest of five and... Neither one of my parents went to college. You know, we were, it was pretty humble. My mm-hmm. mom worked for the police department. My dad worked for the federal government. Um, but, you know, great, great family. Went from there to college, uh, University of Maryland. So, you know, once again, I'm a homegirl. I don't go very far from, from right. the pod, as you can see, when it comes to living or being educated or working. Um, although the travel in this job is taking me very, very far. Um so, yeah, so that was, you know, it, it, pretty conventional, pretty conventional background. And um, I feel very lucky. I feel very blessed. I mean, I have parents that uh, from the start let us all know that we could do anything that we set our minds to and mm-hmm. just never questioned, you know, you're a girl, so therefore, or, you know, you're not from a moneyed family, so therefore, you know, it was never anything like that. It was just... Okay, go yeah. off, do it, get it done. And um, so, yeah, it was great. That's awesome. Yeah. A little uh, trivia for you about your Terrapins. Uh, uh, Maryland, if I've got my facts right, and I think I do, is one of only two colleges in the country that have fire protection engineering programs. Yeah. Uh-huh. And we've got uh, a member fire protection firm locally here that uh, has a lot of grads from Maryland. I say a lot, you know, at least a few. It's Oklahoma State, Maryland. They're the only two. Hmm. Yeah. I I did not know that, but I will tell you that Maryland did not have uh, the major that I was looking for. I thought I was going to be a lawyer, and I was particularly interested in criminal law because, like, a lot of kids, you know, when they're younger, they – they're attracted towards the drama rather than away from it. And I, I thought, oh, I don't want a boring old desk job, so I'll do something exciting, you know, like Perry Mason or whatever. Right. Um, and so I ended up, because they didn't have a law course of study, I did criminal justice and criminology and sociology and all these things. I ended up actually my first real job um, outside of the part-time jobs that I had since I was 14 um, was uh, working in the correction system. 
and I worked at a pre-release center in Montgomery County, Maryland that was trying to um, bring mostly white-collar criminals, kind of acclimate them back into society. And uh, it didn't end up being my life's work, as it turned <laughs> out. Maybe that was because, you know, it's not a great place for a 23- or 24-year-old you know, tall blonde girl to be parading around, and it was it was it was kind of a rough environment. But I also had a lot of sympathy for people that I probably should not have been sympathetic towards. So right. that lasted for about a year. But um, yeah, that is my story with the University of Maryland. I uh, kind of headed me in the wrong direction, and I was freaked out after that about oh my god, I've spent my whole college career headed you know down this one road, and it's not the path that I'm going to take. So I actually ended up in an engineering firm after that. I'll be darned. While you were in college, you mean? Like it was the first, now I, the job, the corrections job was a paid internship through my senior year in college. And then my first job actually right out of college, um, and not because I had any training for it, but because I was a bartender mm-hmm. and um, good training put, me, yeah, put me through school and um, a gentleman from our hometown who was a regular at the bar uh offered me a job. I mean, he didn't really act like he was offering me a job. He said, listen, come in and, um, you know, we'll interview. The company was EG&G, ultimately bought by Aacom. You know, mm-hmm. One of the, well. One of the many. Yeah, one of the Aacom. many. Yeah, and uh, our, our largest member at ACEC, ironically. But we were working on um, sonar systems for nuclear submarines and uh, combat defense systems for nuclear submarines. It was it was not what I was made to do, but right. you know, it was a lot of, it was a lot of fun for those first few years to be involved in something you know that was so massive, and you know, working with the Department of Defense, and, um, Naval Sea Systems Command, and EG&G, and companies like Gold and Bendix and IBM, who were subcontractors. So, it was a good insight into the engineering world, uh, but it's not what stuck with me. Right. Well, one question uh, before we move away into your career path. Uh, last snapshot into the childhood of, of Linda Dar. What did you do as a kid? Hobbies, <sighs> passions, activities, sports, music, theater? Well, yeah. You know, I mean, I was the youngest of five, so I spent a lot of time being bullied by my older <laughs> siblings. That, that was felt like it was a career. I'm also the youngest. That is a true story. Oh, my goodness, especially my oldest brother. And, you know, that that is a conversation <laughs> over a cocktail. But I think that I've been twisted in ways I probably wouldn't have been if it weren't for the brutality of my torturing older siblings. But um, anyway, so, yes, yeah, so I had, uh, you know, I, I was I was. I think I was a pretty good kid. I, I was a good kid. I was um, student council president in sixth grade, and then again, you know, in ninth grade. And then I ran in uh, college, and that was my first defeat, and I never ran again. And I, I ran for, I guess it was, you know, 10th grade class president or something. And it was three girls uh, running against one guy, and um, it didn't work out for me. <laughs> I think Mark Garner got probably, you know, two-thirds of the vote or something like that, and the, the ladies split the the remaining third, but now, you know, and I, I had, I had a lot of fun in high school. I spent every summer from the age of 14 to 19, which is very young. I realized at the beach at Ocean City, Maryland, um, having odd jobs from, you know, working at a surf shop to laying sod to, um, I actually drove a train at Jolly Rogers Amusement Park. Um, That's awesome. Derailed it a few times. Uh, as, 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 you know, I just went a little too fast around the curbs, but well, we're going to get to your uh, yeah. your short line experience. Yeah, I know later. it yeah. was that was always a good line once I got that job. But <laughs> luckily, Bubbles and and uh, Willie would come along with this long steel pole and Jimmy things, and I'd be back on the track and going again and ringing the brass bell. But you know, I loved it. I loved living at the beach. I loved working at the beach. I loved feeling like I was an adult when I was 15 years old, yeah. strutting around like I owned the town. And it was, I think, the it, it, people look back on it now, and they, you know, I explain my past, and people are like, what in the world were you doing living at the beach by yourself when you're 14, 15, 16, 17? And I think my parents saw me as being a responsible person and they saw me doing well in school and I had mm-hmm. nice friends and they said, all right, get on the Greyhound, see you later. And uh, so you, yeah. spent, you spent the summer with <laughs> Bubbles and Willie. With Bubbles and Willie, right. that's right. And uh, <laughs> learn how to drive a train. So it wasn't all bad. That's awesome. No job can be all bad when you work with people named Bubbles, Bubbles and, and Willie. Willie. Yeah. Bubbles and Willie. Yeah, that's awesome. 
They were great. Well, let me ask you this. It It is almost universally true, those of us in the association management business, maybe you're the exception, but very few people, you know, at 18 or going into college are thinking, oh, association management, that's what I want to do. Yeah. And everybody seems to have a unique story of how we all almost accidentally found our way into mm-hmm. it. What is mm-hmm. yours? Yeah, um, you're so right. And it, it's ironic because now my son is a lobbyist and he wants, I think, more than anything uh, to be a trade association CEO at some point. Good for because him. he watched this fabulous time that I've had over the last 30 years and I think he, he really... Um, he aims for that. But no, when, when I was that age, I, I didn't even know, frankly, what a trade association was. Yeah. And I was working in um, defense contracting for this engineering firm and got to the point where it, I realized, you know, unless you're an engineer, you're not really integral to what's going on in this organization and on that project. And, you know, you can do a good job, but your heart's not really in it. So I knew that that was not going to be um, my long-term job. Plus, I had met my husband during that period of time, and he uh, happened to work with me at the company, and that wasn't an ideal situation. So um, my sister had a uh, friend who worked at the American Trucking Associations, and uh, there was a job that was open. They were starting to do international affairs work for the trucking industry. They'd never done that before because at that point, you know, trucks pretty much stayed within the borders and so did the trucking companies um, that that owned those trucks. But uh, NAFTA was coming along and EC92 and, you know, development in the Pacific Rim and companies like UPS and Federal Express and Schneider National, Yellow Freight from Kansas, right? Um, They were all headed into that, you know, exploration of what's out there across the border and and internationally. So um, I thought, wow, what a sexy job, you know, go work in international affairs for some big companies. And um, I went in and I interviewed and I did a miserable, miserable job. And I just was falling all over myself. And I think to this day is you're you're probably witness to right now. I don't give a very good interview. (laughs) So so I'm struggling. And uh, I wanted that job so bad though. So I left the interview and the guy that I interviewed with, his name was Kevin. He calls my friend, who was my sister's best friend, who had told me about the job. And he says, Marsha, I don't know what you were thinking. You know, why in the world would I hire this girl? She's like, no, you know, she's really good. You got to hire her. So I got back in touch with this gentleman, and I said, listen, you know, I can prove myself to you. Let me put together a package tonight. And I'll have it on your desk in the morning. I'm going to tell you, you know, what I would do for the department and what I think it takes to really, you know, to be successful in that role. I said, okay, do it. So I did it. And, you know, I got a computer, worked very late into the night, um, drove over to their headquarters the next morning and had it on his desk before he got into work. And uh, he called me in afterwards and he was like, you know, this is marvelous. You know, what, what is this, what is this deal with you? And I said, I, I just don't interview well. I said, but I know I can do the job and I really want to do this job. And so he hired me and, um, I ended up working for a guy named Tom Donahue, who at the time was president of the American Trucking Associations, which later your former governor, Bill Graves, mm-hmm. who I've had the great pleasure of knowing, uh, became president of ATA. Tom went on to run the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and he was um, my mentor, remains my mentor to this day. He's turned 80 this summer. Um, but he was a guy that, you know, didn't come from a fancy background. Um, and he was very much a straight-talking guy. And um, he just was all about getting it done. And he, for me, was just a tremendous role model and um, somebody that empowered you if you showed that you had the raw materials that it took to get the job done. You didn't have to be a genius. You know, you didn't have to be, you didn't even have to, you know, kiss up to him. Uh, it wasn't one of those deals. It was just, you needed to have that hunger and some, you know, basic skills. And uh, he he just taught us all, I think, so much. And coming out of that that environment over the years now, there have been, I think it's between 10 and 12 people that went on to run their own trade associations that have gone on to be CEOs that worked for Tom. 
So, you know, it has, uh, you know, the, the mentor thing really does matter. And, and he yeah. showed me a lot and taught me a lot. And I feel very, very fortunate to have had that first job, the first real job that stuck with me and introduced me to the association world. And it was really exciting working with these big companies and traveling around the world. And I thought I'd died and gone to heaven, you know. <laughs> It uh, it's like a coaching tree in basketball. It really is a sign of mentorship and success. Yeah. When the people you have on your staff go on to lead their own organizations. Yes. And very cool connection that you also know and had a chance to work with Bill, Bill. Graves because he you know certainly is is an icon here in Kansas. So, uh, well, so that's how you got into the association management side. Uh, walk us through your journey of stops between there yeah. and today. So, um, I worked at ATA for 10 years, and um, during the time that I was there, first of all, I developed a tremendous respect and loyalty for Tom, and um, at the end of his time there, when he was leaving to go run the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, I found myself in kind of a situation where I wasn't sure that I wanted to stay with the new guy that was coming in. This was the guy between Tom and and Bill Graves. and so I started looking around, and uh, people didn't realize at the time that I was a Democrat. Nobody knew that Tom, Tom, I don't think, knew that probably 90% of the people he had working for him were actually Democrats. But it doesn't really matter in transportation. Transportation is not about ideology. It's about just getting it done. Yeah, you know? and... It's the beauty of it. Uh, my apologies for interrupting, but I want yeah. to share an anecdote with yeah. you, too, that we have a leadership program that we do here in the state every year and and have the opportunity to work with other states and do that too. And one of the questions that I pose to the class every year, there's 20 of them in each class, which political party do you think is better for the industry, Republicans or Democrats? (laughs) And we do this in multiple states around the country with different um, political demographics, and yet the vote tends to be usually 50-50-ish. And you know, they'll say, they'll vote, and then, yeah. you know, what's the right answer? And, and my answer yeah. is, it's both. I yeah, mean, why do you think that is? Why do I think it's 50-50 mm-hmm. everywhere, or why do I think Why it's do you think both, frankly, why do you think both parties could be the one that was the best for transportation? What it, do they bring to the table? In my opinion, it's issue-specific, mm-hmm. and what I share with folks all the time is on issues of infrastructure investment, and I should qualify this answer, my perspective is much more from the state level Mm -hmm. than the federal, and the dynamics are a little bit different. But at the state level, infrastructure investment, life safety issues, those type of things, we tend to have more support in the Democratic Party. Mm. Rank and file business issues that involve liability exposure, Mm -hmm. we tend to have more support in the Republican Party Mm. at the local level. And my message to the folks in the leadership program and to anybody that will listen in our industry is the lesson to take away here is not who's better on what. It's that we need all of them. Yeah. And if you are, you know, a Republican or a Democrat or whatever, you don't have the luxury of saying, because I'm a Republican and my legislator's a Democrat, I'm I'm not going to invest in that relationship mm-hmm. or I don't have anything in common with them. That's, that is a... That is a mental approach that is set up for failure. Yeah. I mean, we have got to be engaged. And I know I'm preaching to the choir, Linda, but it's a great question you asked and a a passion of mine. And that's why I say, you know, it's absolutely both parties and you don't get to choose. Well, that's, I I agree with the people that say it's 50-50. And I mean, I think the good thing is, is that we can work with people on both sides of the aisle. It's interesting to hear, you know, kind of what the state and local perspective on that. I think about that from a national perspective. And I think, you know, if you're looking at finding funding sources for infrastructure, you are more likely to look to the Democrats because they are, you know, going to be supportive of the tax base going up. And that's ultimately, it seems like, to be the most convenient, you know, method of funding our infrastructure. Um, But on the other hand, you know, some of the biggest advocates for big infrastructure investment come from the U.S. Chamber or the National Association of Manufacturers or those, you know, businesses that rely on a strong and solid infrastructure. So, um, you know, there are also cheerleaders. At the end of the day, if it's infrastructure, it it benefits us all. It's critical. It's a part of, you know, American freedom. It's it's a 
absolutely essential. And the thing that's unfortunate, I think, right now is that we are finding ourselves in a position where it is starting to move more into the political realm. And I say that from the perspective of a conversation I had, for example, with um, Congressman Lipinski from Illinois. Uh, A few days ago, I was at the Illinois Engineering Excellence Awards dinner, and he was there. And we were talking about, you know, whether or not infrastructure is going to move in Congress this year. And started talking about Nancy Pelosi and, you know, how Nancy Pelosi has got um, this tough decision to make about whether or not she wants to promote it. Because if she promotes it, then it's going to give a win to the president. And she's not inclined to want the president to, you know, be in a good position come the next election. So, um Unfortunately, I think we are once again tied up in politics. And But historically, it has not been a political hot button. But, yeah. you know. And it, it, it remains one of the few policy areas where you genuinely can have some bipartisan support and success. Yeah. Well, I completely <clears throat> derailed us. Um, come, back, come back and give <laughs> back us the... Back to Bubbles and Willie again. <laughs> derailing. <laughs> I didn't even realize the, Go on. didn't realize the pun I just uh, made. You yeah. did it. Yeah. That would have been funnier if it was on purpose. <laughs> uh, give us the, the short Reader's Digest version then of your path from the ATA okay. up to ACEC. Right. So I was leaving. Well, I wanted to leave ATA. And uh, meant this is how we got off on this riff was I was mentioning that um, people didn't realize I was a Democrat and Tom had all these Democrats working for him. And so um, there was a colleague that I had... Um, gotten to know who was assistant secretary for international affairs at the department u.s department of transportation and he said you know we got this great job over here you should come over and interview for it and i went over and um ended up becoming the um, deputy assistant secretary for budget and programs at the u.s department of transportation it's a long story you know long title but it basically you know you are a, a political appointee um overseeing the budget and at the time it was like a 50 50 billion dollar budget i think for um all the different agencies that fall under the u.s department of transportation so that was federal aviation administration the railroad administration the highway administration national highway traffic safety administration at the time coast guard maritime administration um very diverse portfolio you know very different entities so that was really an intense um learning experience about you know what was going on in the different modes and intermodalism and how it all came together and the connection between transportation and a strong and robust economy so um that was you know that was two years but that was in the in the clinton administration and that was just that was the wild ride of mr toad but Um, really learned so much. And I have to tell you, nothing is going to focus you like being told that a briefing that you're preparing tonight is going to be on the president's desk in the morning. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you're laser focused on typos and (laughs) grammar and, you know, just putting some really complex thoughts down in a very concise way and, you know, the power of good communication and for somebody that has this much, you know, bandwidth to digest what you're trying to put right. in their head in a very quick period, of, short period of time. So that was great. I love that. And then I um, parlayed that experience into a position at the American Bus Association. And I was um, there in charge of, uh, I, was, I, was, I, I was kind of the number two. I was in charge of communications. I was in charge of policy. I was in charge of their foundation and just kind of overseeing where they were going and how they were talking about it. And um, that was, well, I guess I was there for seven years and uh, learned a lot about that industry. You're starting to see a theme, you know, trucking and then Mm -hmm. DOT and then at this point buses. And so at that point I was sold that, you know, transportation and and infrastructure and that universe was going to be my path forward. Um, So when I left ABA after seven years, I... um, went on to the uh, American Moving and Storage Association, and I was their CEO for seven years. And uh, that was another wild ride of Mr. Toad. That's another story. But um, And then I went to the American Short Line Regional Railroad Association, ran that for four years, and now I'm here seven months. It is a great infrastructure yeah. background yeah, to it is. bring it's to ACEC. 
It, it is, yeah. I wish yeah. I was paying more attention, though, because I had all the opportunity <laughs> in the world, a lot of time put in. So I grew up, uh, my dad is a PE, and he worked for the DOT here in Kansas his okay. entire life, yeah. And had the same, I've had the same thought many times yeah. in my career. My God, why did you pay more attention when you were... So you many know, opportunities yeah. to learn and, you know, and yep. worrying yep. about what I'm wearing to the office the next day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But some of it sunk in. Otherwise, I don't think that I could have made it past the um, the, the search committee at ACEC. I suspect that's right. That's a tenacious bunch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you this. So at the point in the career that you were at running the short lines, you know, you're, you're past the point of, you know, needing a job or whatever. You're at a point where you can be selective. And what was it about ACEC yeah. that was attractive? Yeah. Um, uh, a few things. I mean, one, the size and the federation structure. Um, mm-hmm. I think that we all want to grow and, you know, test ourselves a little bit further. And um, ACEC was a, a, it was a large organization, is a large organization. It is, um, as, trade associ- as trade associations go in Washington, D.C., it is uh, beyond medium and it's bordering on, on large. Um, so I was, I was pleased about that. I was pleased about the federation structure. Um, I thought, wow, you know, we've got tremendous grassroots. So I saw potential in that, and I saw a lot of room to move, which I always need a lot of room to move. I'm not, I'm not a small, <laughs> contained kind of, you know, person. Right. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not small either, am I? You can testify <laughs> to that. Um, five ten and a half. Um, but you know, so so the thing is, is I w- I went there and I thought, okay, great. So we've got a great. Uh, a great playing field to work on but then from a substantive point of view it's really mimicked a lot of what I had already done when I was at ATA we were the big dogs and then since then I had started to work kind of for um, the people that wanted to raise their prominence and there was always somebody that was a little bit bigger than them in their universe and so um, you know, when I was at the the bus association, they were overshadowed by the trucking industry and by public transit agencies. And, you know, the private bus industry just didn't feel like they were getting the recognition that they deserved. And then I went under the American Moving and Storage Association, once again, dominated by the trucking industry. This is a trucking-based um, environment, the moving industry, but it was not, you know, they did not have the same clout that the trucking industry did. So, Short line railroads, you know, there's 600 short line railroads short. So they're small to medium railroads and they were up against the class one railroads, mm-hmm. you know, Kansas City Southern, um, Union Pacific, uh, BNSF, CSX, those guys are behemoths. And so you've got these, you know, small to mid-sized companies that are trying to play in the same game and compete. And they wanted to get the recognition that they were due. So I was always the one that was kind of able to go in, I think, and be, you know, overused term be the cheerleader for the industry but I mean that in a in kind of a different way to be the the spokesperson that can talk to the value and that can show them a value in themselves that they might not have seen before and help them articulate it and so this organization and this industry was so ripe for that and the thing that's great is I think all the engineers that I've come in contact with get that. You know, they. I am surrounded by brilliant people, um, brilliant people that can do the math, brilliant people that you want to have with you in a foxhole. But they're not necessarily people that brag on themselves. They're not people that, um, frankly, can tell their story very well within the context of the larger economy. Man, and that is so true. Yeah. And it's, and it's, for me, it's such a, it's such a shame because we bring so much to the table, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, from, from the dawn of time, it seems like, you know, engineers were, were making things work and showing us the way forward and making things possible that we always thought were impossible. And, and for me, that's a, that's a really compelling story and it gets me fired up about coming into work every day. Uh, That is so true. One of the things that I think we you and I and the people in our roles, one of the things that is incumbent on us to do is to help our members understand what great ambassadors and and influencers they can be. Mm-hmm. You look around at the professional associations or the professions, I should say, 
and you know attorneys it's almost a pejorative term when you right. say it and doctors there's all the you know nobody likes insurance et cetera, et cetera. and you know engineers and professional designers have huge capital it's a trusted group um, it's a respected group yep. and and I'm going off on a tangent, but no, basically what I'm saying is is I couldn't agree with you more yeah. that for all the strengths, strengths they bring to the table, being willing to aggressively tell their own story is not one of them. And it's part of what I love about them mm-hmm. is their modesty. <laughs> but but Me it too. is an opportunity yeah. to, to help them get that voice and that profile. It is an opportunity. And the thing is, is that... Um, I want to use that opportunity not to find my way onto CNN and MSNBC and CBS and Fox and whoever. I want to inspire them to a point where they feel comfortable in that role. You know, I can go and tell, I, I'm, I can tell stories as well as anybody else. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm comfortable in that environment, but I believe that they, their genuineness um, the, that kind of nature that they have where you just automatically trust them. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're talking to them, you can see it in their eyes. It's just a smart, straight talking person. Absolutely. And there's so much value in that in today's world. You know, I mean, think mm-hmm. about what powerhouses we could be on some of these networks if we were able to just cut through some of the BS and tell people the facts. You know, if we had that opportunity, I think it would be refreshing. Glory, hallelujah. Yeah, <laughs> let's start singing. And the other thing that, you know, folks in our position know is that no matter how good a job you and I do telling the story, we're getting paid to tell it. Yeah. And our members are living it. They're living and, it. And they're not getting compensated to be in front of that, you know, committee. Yep. Uh, they don't have a board they're answering to like you and I do for how they carry the message. It's mm-hmm. just genuine. Yeah. And it makes them powerful advocates, that and their knowledge. So, yeah, I'm... I'm a huge fan yeah. of that, of your focus on that and that opportunity. I think that's awesome. Yeah, good. Well, let's speaking of that, let's segue in. Um, so, got a snapshot of life up to ACEC and a little bit of the window through which you saw ACEC and what made it attractive to mm-hmm. you. So now you're here, six months into the job. You know, we have a had a chance to visit offline a little bit. I know there's some strategic planning initiatives mm-hmm. coming up with results maybe in the next six to 12 months coming out. Mm-hmm. Recognizing that that process hasn't played out yet and that that will really be the answer to my next question. Yeah. Tell me to the extent you can what some of the strategic initiatives are now that you've come on board, some new areas of focus. And I'll throw you a softball to start and then take it wherever you want to go. But one of the things that I've already seen, which is appreciated, Mm -hmm. uh, there's a huge focus on the states. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of our listeners will know we refer to them as MOs, member Mm -hmm. organizations, but the states basically. uh, There's been a real focus there, a lot of good communication, which has been really appreciated. But that and anything else, what uh, what can you share with us about the, the priorities and the goals? Yeah, so um, I'm glad that you recognized one of those priorities because if that wasn't apparent at this point, we really would not have been, you know, hitting the mark on something that's a priority. You know, one of the things I said was I was excited because we had such a great network to work through and that this was a federation. And so 52 member organizations coming together, 50 of them states, two of them regional uh, organizations. And Man, you know, if you muster those forces, you expand your influence. You know, if you're all pulling in the same direction and you have the same talking points, that is such a powerful base to increase the prominence and the influence of this industry. And that's that's really ultimately my goal. You mm-hmm. know, that is what we're trying to do here is to increase the prominence and the influence of an industry that is underappreciated and um, underpaid, unfortunately. Um, and uh, underestimated. So um, that's the goal. And the only way we can do that is to use um, our leadership abilities and the leadership, the innate leadership abilities of the people that are running each one of those state organizations by pulling together, making sure that everybody realizes it's a partnership, making sure people feel like they're well-resourced for the fight, um, that there's good communications flowing, 
and that there's a level of respect and dialogue there that you know may may not have been you know at its at the height that it needed to be at in in the past so um you know kudos to our team for doing a great job we've got Daphne Bryan on hand who is just and I say this in the the kindest way possible she is an animal mm-hmm. And I love animals. <laughs> Got uh, two emails from her this afternoon She's while so I was good. setting up I the know. podcast waiting She's for so you. so good. <laughs> and, um, you know, I see that kind of energy coming out of so many of our team members. And that just reinforces my excitement about working for this organization. So she's awesome. She's going to do a lot of work. I know we're going to help the member organizations grow. Um, and that's that's a primary goal. Um, we talked already about, you know, another important goal, and that is telling the story of the industry. And we have been, and I know you're going to nod your head on this one, we do a great job of talking to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we don't do a great job of uh, focusing the message externally. And um, we know that that's true to some extent because that's the engineering personality, you know. And this is, this is definitely an industry with a very distinct personality, more than I've seen in any other industry that I've worked for. That's absolutely true. (laughs) You know, and it's a great personality for all the reasons that we talked about, but, you know, it can be a challenge on the communications front. And so that's where I think we we really need to take this, um, take this group is to, to up our game, to present a face to uh, the media and to, influencers, policymakers, and their constituents that, that is, is accurate and that really reflects the value that we bring um, to our jobs and to our clients and to society. So that's, that's going to be a really, that's going to be a really important challenge for us. Um, we are pulling together the materials so that our members will be more successful in participating in that change. Mm-hmm. Um, we are also, we hired a couple of weeks ago, a fabulous uh, young man named Jeff Urbanchuk, or Urbanchuk, I think is how he prefers to pronounce it. And he worked for Chairman Schuster of the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee for a number of years. And he also worked uh, in a PR firm representing a number of trade associations. But this is our first really visible move in that direction. Um, we hired him as Director of Strategic Communications. And he's going to be working under Steve Hall, who is our Senior VP for Advocacy and Government Affairs. And I know he is well-respected in this industry. He does a great job. But Jeff's going to be helping Steve tell our story on the Hill and establish those relationships with the media so that that can be a support system for our advocacy efforts. Um, And we've also, we pulled together a group. We have a lot of talented people on our team but we can't hire, you know, 10 people to set up a communications shop and just, you know, move the dial tremendously all at once. Right. So we're kind of, you know, picking and choosing from among our team. We have some really smart marketing people. We have some people that are good at member communications. We're bringing in this new talent to talk to the outside world and focus on external communications. And so um, we've got a Marcom group that we call them, and we're meeting every couple of weeks. We're putting together a very aggressive strategic communications plan um, and you're going to see that bits of that rolling out over the next six months or so. Um, a lot of change in that regard. And um, for me, that that's a very important part of positioning us as thought leaders um, and um, earning that recognition that we've been seeking uh, yeah. for the industry. One of the, I think that's an excellent objective. And back to you know the the culture of engineering. So we have an association management company, ACC is just mm-hmm. one of our clients, mm-hmm. um, but it's our largest client. And But the point is, you know, we have the opportunity to work with lots of different people, lots of professions, mm-hmm. and you see lots of cultures in each one. Engineering is distinct, no doubt, but it's it's the conundrum or the dichotomy. On the one hand, they're the greatest group of people to work for you could ever hope to have mm-hmm. because they're dispassionate they're data-driven, they're mm-hmm. problem solvers, the highs are not too high, the lows are not too low, <laughs> it's all about solutions, and it's awesome, uh, but the one area where it turns into a weakness sometimes is they don't toot their own horn, they yeah. don't realize how powerful of advocates they can be, yeah. and so I think that strategic goal is awesome. Yeah, and, and we are going to do a lot of storytelling on their part. You're gonna, We're going to produce an annual report this year. We've never done an annual report, which is kind of funny. You know, I think the, the annual report is something that really places you on the map um, 
with new members coming into the organization, but you deliver it all around the hill. You deliver it to stakeholder organizations. You know, you mm-hmm. give it to people in the media. It, it's what it's a visual of you know the impact that you're having. So, we're going to have an annual report. We're also going to take our engineering excellence awards on the road, and so we're going to create a road show uh, with politicians and with the media and with the project design firms, and we're going to go on site. And we're going to talk about what that project's value was, Very who was cool. behind it. Yeah. yeah. Try to get, you know, a news hook off of that. Um, and we're also going to do a, what we're calling a brag book for the Engineering Excellence Awards. Again, I mean, these, you know, some of this stuff is just, you talk about engineering marvels. I mean, the Grand Conceptor Award this year is just going to be fabulous. It's really inspirational. Um, and we just don't, we don't talk about that enough. And you tell your story in pictures as much as you do in words. Um, so I think, you know, we're, we're going to get some of those fabulous shots of these amazing uh, projects and combine that with some thoughtful dialogue. And mm-hmm. I think I think we're going to see a little bit of a different environment this time next year. And getting the elected officials out, boots on the ground, to see these projects is, right. is huge, not only because they see what infrastructure dollars do, mm-hmm. but, I mean, they are by the mere act of being there, they are strengthening that relationship to ACEC, yeah. to the member firm in their district, to build the product. And right. I know I'm preaching it's to all the choir a here, but it yeah, is. Yeah. It is. And, yep. Well, Linda, I really appreciate you coming on. I mean, I think this is great. Our folks um, are excited of what ACEC's got planned moving forward, and I think mm-hmm. this is a hugely helpful snapshot of the new leadership and, and where you want to take the program and uh, if you'll humor us, we always end our podcast, with, we call them the lightning round. It's a handful yeah. of random questions. <laughs> uh, don't worry, there are no wrong answers or, or uh, sticky wickets you've uh, got to yeah, negotiate Yeah, that's what you here. say. Right. You say that. Right. Uh, but a few things that will help, you know, paint a picture of, of you as the person to all our folks out there listening. Okay. So um, what, this is a great way to... to get a picture of somebody without doing something indelicate like asking them their age mm-hmm. what 55 would <laughs> <laughs> my birthday is on uh, sunday i'll be 56 <laughs> i should have known i didn't five foot ten and a half i already gave you that i'm not holding anything back <laughs> i should have known i didn't need to be indelicate no what um what would you say are two or three of the defining american moments that you have active memory of you know for some people the older generation it might be pearl harbor or whatever um culturally yeah. uh, this is not an engineering question yeah. this is a humanity question yeah you know um two of them that come to mind one is uh, of course 9 11 mm-hmm. and you know coming you know growing up in the nation's capital that had a profound effect and i just remember that day and you know the not getting too maudlin about it but really you know the horror on people's faces as, you know, we went into work and saw on TV, you know, in our offices what was going on. And then I looked out my window because, you know, I'm two or three blocks from the White House. And uh, you see the smoke coming up. And, you know, it looked like it was coming from the White House. And um, and I had three young kids that were in elementary school at that time. And I called my husband and, you know, we we're having all kinds of trouble with the cell phone, trouble getting through. But he said, you know, all right, you go ahead and go home, get the kids. But whatever you do, don't drive by the Pentagon because I think they hit the Pentagon, too. And it turned out that they had to hit the Pentagon. We thought they'd hit the White House. So I get on the road and, you know, the mother instincts um, kick in and overdrive. And so I drove by the Pentagon because that was the quickest way home. And... Um, I remember as I'm driving by the Pentagon, all these cars that were coming out going the wrong way on these exit ramps onto 395, you know, causing collisions that were, you know, as a result of the chaos that was going on around that. Um, But, and then going home, you know, once I got the kids and these happy little, you know, I have twin boys and a daughter. And at the time, I think the boys were maybe five or six and my daughter was, you know, seven or eight. And they see me, and they're so happy. They think, wow, you know, it's a great day. Mom's here. And, you know, they come to see me. And um, they were like, you know, Mom, what's going on? Why are you here? Once they stopped skipping, (laughs) yay. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, they said, somebody said there was a bomb. And, you know, so you're thinking, my word, you know, how do I tell these small children, you know, the what what's happening in our world? You know, how do you define that? And I think, you know, that day for me, 
um, was huge because it changed their lives. It changed their sense of safety and security. And, um, but it also uh, brought about this sense of uh, patriotic strength, you know, that probably they wouldn't have felt if it weren't for that, you know, this, this sense that we all have about protecting the country that we love. Um, and then, you know, and th- this is, I told you I'm a Democrat, and this says I'm, I'm actually very, very moderate. Um, but the day that President Obama was elected, I remember driving through D.C., and something about getting past that race divide, that we had, we got there, you know, it was our first African-American president, and everybody was being so nice to one another. And it was bizarre. I mean, I've never seen people in D.C. be so nice to each other. And I think that we were all so proud of one another, you know, that we had gotten past this ugly period, you know. And um, I just remember driving through traffic and everybody was letting everybody else go in front of them. And I, I had never had a feeling like that before where, you know, an election had had such an amazing impact. You know, It's great. fascinating, too. Those are two anecdotes that would probably be fairly common for people around our generation-ish, yeah. but that's the first time I've heard them from somebody that experienced it in D.C. In D.C., yeah. And, yeah. and I'd say in both cases, particularly the 9-11 mm-hmm. case, um, much more powerful. You know, when you think about around here, we would talk about 9-11 and, uh, you know, maybe I can't wait to see my kids after school that day because it's a scary day. Yeah. You're talking about picking your kids up and driving them by the Pentagon with a plane crashed in the yard. And we drove home. So we, I take them home and all the parents, I'm sorry for going on about this, but it was such a moment. All the parents are gathered around in our front yards and we're not sure. You know, we're seeing these pictures of people coming out of the World Trade Center, you know, in not a pleasant way. And the ki- we wanted to keep the kids away from the TV, but we were afraid to have them outside because this huge, dark black cloud was slowly making its way over our houses. And, you know, it was other than that, it was a beautiful, bright, sunny day. Everybody remembers that about 9-11. But this literal dark cloud is moving over our house and you're worried about, you know, what, you know, are we safe? You know, yeah. it was, uh, and then for, you know, for a month after that, not hearing any planes going overhead, which we heard all the time, um, but it stopped for a month, with the exception of at night, where you'd hear these military patrols. You know, that's scary stuff. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. It's heavy stuff. It was crazy. Well, two last questions for you. Uh, what would be what what famous quote or or bit of wit and wisdom do you recite the most? Ugh. Or if you have to pick two or three, that's fine. Yeah. Oh, gosh, there's so many. You know, I love the one about, you know, the man in the arena. I love that. That's mm-hmm. always something that has inspired me. Teddy Roosevelt. Yep. Yeah. And then there was, um, but but the one, you know, it's funny. I don't know where this came from. This was in some leadership exercise that I took at one point. But this is my mentoring moment always for people, something that was an aha time for me, where um, they somebody said, you know, we... We judge others by um, their actions, and we judge ourselves by our intentions. And I thought that was so powerful because, you know, especially when you're a hard-charging person, you're trying to get things done, and and you're trying to get it done because you want to do a good job, and you want your team to be successful. And sometimes <clears throat> you know that that's your intention, but other people don't necessarily know that that's your intention. They just see you as this hard charger person running ahead, you know, hair on fire, and they make all kinds of assumptions. So what that told me was that, you know, in order to be effective, you need to be very purposeful about your intentions, kind of what's in your head, what's in your heart, what your aspirations are. And by sharing that with people, I think they will be a lot more accepting when you are trying to push that rock up the, the, the hill, you know, we're all Sith of us at some point. And, right. you know, you really, you really <laughs> a, need to, you know. It's a discouraging thought. But yeah, it's true. I know, I know. So, <laughs> but they have more sympathy for you. And if they see, you know, the vision that you have ahead, then they'll get on board with you and they'll forgive you some of the, 
some of the stuff that some is some of the rough edges. Yeah, some of the rough edges. So I must yeah. have a lot of those because that was a meaningful quote. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's excellent. That's good. very good. Well, last question. So we've enjoyed having you here in the heartland, and I hope you will come back and see us. I promise you this sub-zero temperature and frozen tundra here which by the time our listeners hear this it'll probably be spring and beautiful but well i'll be in uh, alaska two weeks from now so better get ready for it well come back and see us in the heartland (laughs) it's been great but last question for you uh when you fly back home and you your phone syncs to whatever bluetooth it knows first your car your home or whatever Mm. uh what book audio book or podcast or music or whatever Mm -hmm. would come up what are you listening to right now yeah well um what i'm what i'm reading right now is a book called the president's club that is fascinating to me and it's kind of this group of past presidents it is the group of past presidents at any time in history and the relationship that they have in um, kind of supporting one another and guiding one another in a job that is only known by, you know, a handful of people at any one time in history. Yeah. And it's a very rare relationship and it's really a great read and it's it's very revealing. And, you know, my music, I am the most eclectic uh, music listener tour in the that I know but you know lately the one one that just really is resonating with me that I love is it's so corny but it's shallow from a star is born oh my gosh we I just can't stop singing that I have it in my head all the time and of course Van Morrison into the mystic is my constant oh that's outstanding yeah yeah Yeah, I assume you saw Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper perform it moved my soul. Yeah. I cannot believe Gaga keeps saying that it was intentional and that it was all scripted out. Right. My romantic heart tells me that there's more to it than that, <laughs> and she and Bradley deserve a future together. Inquiring minds they want, want to, to know. know. <laughs> yeah. Well, Linda, thank you so much for making time to be here. My pleasure. And being generous with your time this afternoon. Uh, very excited to have you join us on the QBS Express podcast, and uh, we hope you've enjoyed your time in Kansas and you'll come back. I think it's great. And, and Scott, I want to thank you for your leadership in Kansas. Um, you are thought of as just a really solid uh, advocate for this industry. And um, I think that you're very re- well respected by your members. And uh, you've got a great group to work with here. So it's my pleasure to spend the afternoon with well, you. Kind words. I appreciate that. And, and it is a great group here. You'll, you're yep. going to grow to love them the more exposure you have to them. They're great. Okay. That. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in to the QBS Express podcast and our guest, Linda Dar. We will talk to you again on the next edition of the QBS Express.